I think it's a necessary precondition if you want to have support that people feel afraid, that people feel insecure, that people feel that the situation is not stable. The right-wing populist party that wants to thrive in this climate needs that kind of situation. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome to the podcast that searches for the ideas, policies and strategies that can veto for a time populists like Donald Trump over the next four years and the next 40. Well, well, well. We have Michael Cohen turning himself in, accepting a plea deal, incriminating a political candidate whose name shall not be named of having broken campaign finance rules in a blatant way. We have Paul Manafort being convicted on a whole series of charges relating to corrupt practices involving Russia-linked politicians in Ukraine. It is getting more and more clear that the Mueller investigation, which I don't talk all that much about here on the podcast, I want to focus on the more long-term things, that the Mueller investigation is not a witch hunt. That is likely to uncover some real criminal wrongdoing on behalf of the president. Now, at the same time, we see Donald Trump continuing to revoke the security clearances of people he doesn't like, continuing to try and get various people in the FBI who displease him fired, disrespecting the independence of institutions like the FBI and the CIA and making it very clear that he doesn't consider Mueller's investigation legitimate. There are all kinds of details to be on top of here. But the one thing that matters is that the investigation into Trump is likely to turn up things that will be very dangerous to him. And Donald Trump is unlikely to see this investigation as legitimate. And that seems to me to imply that sooner or later, we are headed for a showdown between Donald Trump and the independent institutions of his country. It has seemed again and again like this day was nigh. It has not yet come. Perhaps it never will. I fear that our democracy is about perhaps tomorrow, perhaps in two months, perhaps in a year or two to face that test. And when it does, what we do actually matters. Coming out in the streets, fighting for our independent institutions will actually matter because that might be one of those moments in which history goes in this direction or in that. And we better be ready to recognize the stakes of that and to do what we can to defend what's left of our democratic rules and norms. My favorite race. But now I'm really excited to welcome Peter Volodarsky to the podcast. Peter is somebody who at a very young age has already accomplished just about everything you can in Swedish journalism. He's been a TV host there and he is the editor of Dagens Nyheter, one of the biggest newspapers in the country. We've had a really great wide-ranging conversation about whether Sweden really is as wonderful as we from a distance think uh, and more importantly, what the reasons might be for the very rapid and scary rise of populists throughout Scandinavian politics and particularly in Sweden in the form of the Sweden Democrats, a party with roots in the neo-Nazi movement that may 
next week take at least 20% of a vote in Sweden that may even become the strongest political party there. I hope you enjoyed. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Peter. Thank you for inviting me, Asha. Great to be with you. Listen, so, you know, there's this slightly cliche image that people in the United States and in some other parts of Europe have about Sweden and Scandinavia, that these are the societies where everything is going wonderfully, everything is going right, they are the models that we should aspire to. In terms of what the sort of historical political settlement is in Sweden, would you say that there's something to it, both on the side of the economy, with a very big, generous welfare state, but also quite a dynamic economy, and more broadly on the cultural side, with Sweden and other Scandinavian countries historically having been very welcoming to refugees and immigrants and so on. I mean, when you rewind for 15 or 20 years, how much truth do you find in that slightly cliched picture and how much of it do you think was always wrong? Well, if you look at sort of standard economic statistics, metrics in regards to Sweden and, and Scandinavia, things are really going well. That is not what most Swedes would think right now in this election year, but in terms of employment, GDP growth, unemployment, all the kind of traditional metrics, things look good, but, but that's not what people are discussing. So what most Swedes are thinking about these days are other issues like immigration, like law and order, kind of things that has affected politics in Europe over the last years and also the Scandinavian countries and, and especially Sweden. So that's sort of part of what's so striking about this case, right? That you start with a lot of advantages, things on objective measures looking a lot better than in many other European countries, in certain respects looking better than the United States. And yet over the last few years, you've had a tremendous transformation of Scandinavian politics and particularly Swedish politics. We have an election very soon in Sweden in which after decades of dominance of the Social Democratic Party, particularly in the post-war period, you now might see the Sweden Democrats, certainly around the 20% mark, potentially even as the strongest party. So what's the nature of the Swedish Democratic movement and how is it possible that they've had such an appeal in Sweden, even though it looks from the outside like things are going more or less fine? So this party, the Sweden Democrats, was started in the late 80s by veterans in the neo-Nazi movement in, in Sweden. And for a long time, it was a very small party. But in the beginning of the 1990s in Sweden, we had a big economic crisis. It was a very traumatic event for many Swedes. Unemployment rates were skyrocketing. And at that very moment, and it's now almost 30 years Years ago, there was a populist surge in Sweden, but it didn't come from the Sweden Democrats. It came from another party, a party called New Democracy, that actually entered parliament in the beginning of the 1990s. But there was it was such a mess, that party, and when they entered parliament, that they lost their seats in 1994. And the Swedish economy rebounded, and things started to look much better. And I think... The reason why we saw this surge in the Sweden democratic movement much later than in, in some other European countries was that we had this experience with the populists in the beginning of the 1990s. Many Swedes thought that we're not going that road again. But then in 2010, the Sweden Democrats actually entered parliament. They got something like 4 or 5%. In last election, 13% in 2014. And now it looks like they're going to have 20%. And the big thing, and it was also a big thing in the 1990s, 
still is immigration. And the country is divided on that issue. And the Sweden Democrats have offered a clear alternative and they want to have no immigration at all. So when we had the big inflows of, of refugees in 2015, that worked as a catalyst for this party. And they searched in the opinion polls and they are still at those levels and in even a bit higher, as you mentioned. And they will clearly perform very well in these elections. And they are creating turbulence in the entire Swedish political landscape because there is no clear majority now in Swedish politics anymore. So we will end up in a very similar situation to the German situation where no one knows who will form the government after the election and it might take a very long time. And traditional ways of how politics worked here, they are changing rapidly. So I want to do two things before we delve deep into the conversation. First of all, you know, I said traditionally the way that politics worked here, I think it would be great for listeners to learn more about that. How did party politics work in Sweden originally? It's a system of proportional representation. What would the formation of a government and the alternation of governments traditionally have looked like? So we have a parliamentary democracy, which means that it's not a presidential system. Um, you need to have basically the passive support of the majority in parliament in order to form a government. And what is striking when you look at, at Swedish political history is that it is a country where one party, the Social Democratic Party, dominated politics for a very, very long time. So some people said 10 years ago, 15 years ago, or still at that time, that we were almost a one-party democratic state because the Social Democrat had ruled at that point 88% of the time since the 1930s. So sometimes during the time period, they had an absolute majority, right? So sometimes they got over 50% of the votes. They actually didn't. They had it at one point in 1968 but they had a passive support of the Communist Party. So they could rule the country. And there was some very short time periods where the opposition, the centre-right and the Liberals, came into power, but those were exceptions from the rule. This was the country where Social Democrats could decide basically everything. But the majority of the time, they did that in coalition with smaller left-wing coalition partners. The Social Democrats might have 40-45% of the votes in Parliament. No formal coalition. It was a one-party government. So in the last election, that was the first time when the Social Democrats actually, uh, for a very long time, came into government together with another party, the Green Party, similar to what the German Social Democrats did much earlier. But the Social Democrats have lost support in different phases since the 1970s. And they are now polling at something like 25%, which historically is a a very low result for them. But compared to other uh, European social democratic parties, it's, it's actually pretty good. But they are afraid now, of course, that they could perform even worse. So the question everyone is asking is, is this the end of the two social democratic parties? Are we starting to see the same kind of development as the socialists in France or even in Greece? It's even worse. There are some countries where the social democrats have, have basically disappeared. So it's traumatic and it's very challenging for them to find a role in this time. So certainly the sort of slow apparent death of social democracy across Europe is the big stories of the last decades and one of the things that has allowed the rise of far-right populism across the continent. And there are now some countries where social democratic parties have essentially disappeared. I think in Ireland, in France, and in a couple of other countries, they've been reduced, in, in the Netherlands, I believe, they've been reduced to 6% of the vote. And in a whole swath of bigger countries, including Germany and others, 
they are at record lows. So it looks like it might be the first stage of the same development in Sweden, for it's too early to tell, I suppose. What about the Sweden Democrats? Are they just a box-standard far-right populist party that is very comparable to the alternative for Germany, to the League in Italy? Or is the fact that they have recent actual roots in the neo-Nazi movement, which neither of those parties do, something that actually sets them apart from other far-right populist parties in Europe? I would argue that they are a more nasty version of the same kind of trends we see all over Europe because of their roots in neo-Nazism, which means that it will be, and it, it has been, and it will still be much more difficult for all the other democratic parties to deal with the Sweden Democrats and to negotiate with them or to form a coalition with them. I mean, in Norway, for example, the right-wing populists, they are part of the government. That happened in Finland as well. In Denmark, the right-wing populists, they affect the government although a lot, although they are outside the government. In Sweden, all the major parties have said that they don't want to deal with the Sweden Democrats. That has been the message up until now. And now we will see what will happen after the election. It's a historic moment for that very reason, because no one really knows how Sweden will be able to form a government if the center-right parties and the social democrats, if they don't start to talk to each other. And that hasn't happened for a very, I mean, in certain on certain issues, but they have, haven't formed a government since the Second World War. So it seems to me from the outset that the answer is actually relatively clear. I mean, it's a real problem in the way you outline and the way that I've put that before about countries like Germany is that representative democracy works reasonably well when you have a center-left bloc and they might be in a formal coalition as they tend to be in countries like Germany, or they might be in an informal coalition in which the smaller party tacitly tolerates the other, as you've pointed out, has historically been the model in Sweden. But you essentially have, you know, the Social Democratic Party plus a smaller Green Party or perhaps even a Communist Party forming a bloc and being in government for a little while. And then at some point, people might be sick of them. They might feel like they've been in government for too long. They've run out of ideas. Perhaps they've had a corruption scandal. So you have a center-right government for a while. And again, that might be a big center-right party and a smaller one. They form the sort of cohesive bloc for a while, and eventually the pendulum swings back. Now, what happens when populists reach enough critical mass, certainly when they are at about 20%, which we can expect them to have in Sweden, is that the center-left bloc no longer has a majority. The center-right bloc no longer has a majority. So you have two choices. Either you cooperate with the populists, or more likely, you build some form of grand coalition. You have to reach across this kind of divide. Now, that's been the solution that most European countries have taken. Why does it sound, from what you're saying, that that's more difficult in Sweden? Why is it culturally so difficult to imagine that the Social Democrats and, say, the Moderate Party, which, which is one of the center-right parties, might go into government together? Well, one important reason is that the Social Democrats have been so dominating in Swedish politics. The center-right parties, the liberals and the, the former conservatives, they build part of their identity in being against the Social Democrats, a historic reason why conservatives and liberals cooperated for a very long time, because they wanted to chase out the Social Democrats out of power. Now things have changed so much. So the question is what a center-right will look like. And, and the center-right tended to be very much focused on openness, pro-immigration, pro-markets, but now we also see a split among the center-right parties. There is one group that is still very much pro-immigration, but the former conservative party is drifting towards a position that is 
quite skeptical of immigration, actually. So we see the kind of fragmentization going on in, in that block as well, which is complicating the situation. So, I mean, these are really turbulent times and uh, no one really knows what will happen, but things have to change mm. because otherwise we will end up in a situation where no one can form a government. And that is not unlikely. It can happen for a couple of months and we will have another election. And Germany was very close to that. Yeah. So certainly those developments are going in parallel. I mean, I think it's interesting actually for an American audience to see some of the specific problems you get in systems of proportional representation, because I think that there's a tendency in the United States to say, because we have a majoritarian system, we have a first-past-the-post system in which the person who gets elected is the one who has a bare majority. It really discourages third parties. It really discourages new challenges. And so we're left with a choice of only two parties. And if both of those parties do a bad job, that really restricts the choice that voters have. And, and that is true. That is one of the attributes of the system. But it also has, as political scientists have long ago pointed out, a positive aspect, which is that you vote for a Democrat, you know what kind of government, what kind of majority that vote goes towards. The problem in a system of proportional representation, especially when you have some parties in the system which most people don't want to deal with, is that, yes, you get better choice. You have five or six parties to choose from. And so it's yeah. more likely that you have one which you say, hey, you know what? I really kind of like what they stand for. They really represent my values. But you don't know what actual government your vote might be contributing to. So right now in Sweden, you might go and vote for the Green Party, which is one of the parties furthest on the left. And in the end, perhaps they're going to help prop up a center-right prime minister because somehow they're going to have to form a government. And that creates its own kind of problem. But going beyond that, Peter... So you have this especially nasty version of a far-right populist party, a party that has, you know, recent roots in the neo-Nazi movement, in a country in which, unlike the United States, the living standard of average people has actually risen quite significantly over the last 25, 30 years, in which you have all of the things which I would be tempted to say, lots of people would be tempted to say in the United States, would solve some of our political problems. You have universal health care. You have universal pre-K. You have all kinds of things that the American left can only dream of. And yet you have a mass of working class voters abandoning their traditional home in the Social Democratic Party and drifting towards the Sweden Democrats. What gives? What's happened in Sweden that helps us to explain that? I think it's easier actually to see the similarities between all the Western countries because the right-wing populists are strong almost everywhere. When I follow the US discussion, a lot of things have been said about inequality, about workers not getting a better situation in terms of, of rising income. But when I look at the Swedish situation, as you point out, many of the things that are lacking in the US in terms of the economy and improvements for everyone we have seen that in Sweden. We have an extensive collective bargaining system that have actually guaranteed a rise in incomes for all broad groups. And still, the right-wing populists are surging. So there has to be some other explanation why they're performing so well. And I think still, I mean, when you look at the situation, this is a conflict about what kind of role Sweden should play in the world and, and the kind of openness we should have or not have. And uh, what we see, I think, is a strong reaction to the traditional openness of Sweden. Where we have had a large inflow of immigrants over the last 25 years. That has, I think, benefited Sweden in many respects, but it has changed Sweden. And 
there are a large portion in society of, of people that are reacting now, and we see a backlash against this openness, against the changes in society, and a longing for something that has been lost. And the question is, what is that? But that kind of reaction is not unsimilar to what has helped Trump into power in the US, I think. So, you know, I sometimes joke that if a stop clock is right twice a day, populists are right three or four times a day, more in the analysis of things than in the solutions, which are virtually inevitably wrongheaded. The two of us actually share a little bit of something in our family background, Peter. We both have family that was kicked out of Poland rather unceremoniously in the 1960s. And I believe that's when your parents came to Sweden. Correct me if I'm wrong. It's when part of my family came to Sweden. My uncle and my grandmother came to Sweden at that point. My grandmother arrived in the country when she was you know, close to retirement age, was given essentially a kind of make-believe job by the state for a couple of years. She worked in some local library, even though she didn't speak a word of Swedish at that point, and was then able to retire on a minimal state pension that bought her a very, very dignified life. And after a horrible biography in which she barely survived the Second World War. Much of her family was murdered. She would always look around her small social housing apartment in council estate in Lund and say, I could never have imagined living out my days in such luxury. So I have you know, a lot to be grateful for, and my family has a lot to be grateful for to Sweden. At the same time, I wonder whether obviously a lot of the rise of the Sweden Democrats is connected with the perhaps traditional immigration, but certainly also the refugee crisis over the last few years and the fact that Sweden has taken in per capita one of the highest numbers of refugees in Europe. And populists at least claim that there's been all kinds of malfunction in the state, that a state that traditionally has worked incredibly well has just actually failed to handle this in the right kind of ways and so on. How much credence do you give to that set of criticisms? Do you think that there is a real thought of more established political parties there who perhaps were naive or simply not up to the task of this tremendous challenge and so people sort of have a real reason to be angry or do you think that this is demagogues exploiting a situation in the world and making it out to be much worse than it is? So first, I think my family's story is a perfect example of Sweden's openness to the world and, and how that has changed society. I mean, and we are extremely grateful for being able to to live. And I was born in Sweden and uh, my family has benefited enormously from the generosity of Swedish society. Our story is an example of how immigration can work and integration can work. But of course, there are real problems as well at the same time. And not only in Sweden, in France, in the Netherlands, in, in Germany. And some of those problems are severe. Some are less severe. I think we can deal with them. What the populists are doing is that they enlarge these problems a lot and they pick and choose what they want and they make them into a bigger story about a Swedish society collapsing, which is an extreme exaggeration. What has happened over the last years is that with digitalization and all the new social media, what we see is a ecosystem that the right-wing populists have been extremely successful in exploiting. And it's an ecosystem that is pretty effective nationally, but it's also connected globally. So what we have experienced is that many store, local stories in Sweden have ended up on Breitbart, even on the Daily Mail, and they sort of go around the world and come back. And that kind of feedback loop has affected domestic 
domestic politics in Sweden a lot in ways that politicians were very late in realizing. But it is happening. And I think Sweden also is a case that is getting a lot of attention. And the right-wing populists around the world are interested in Sweden because Sweden is an example of modernity. And we are at the forefront of this globalization. So if you want to attack these things, Sweden is a pretty useful example that has been used and is still used by many different actors, even a lot by the Russians like Sputnik and and Russia today. They are very interested in Sweden as well. So obviously claiming that Swedish society is on the brink of collapse is a ridiculous overstatement. But where do you think the real problems lie? You have seen in the last months a spree of cars being set on fire in some of the underprivileged suburbs. You keep having these stories of emergency services coming under attack when we go into certain kinds of neighborhoods. There are some stories, though, I don't know how true or not they are, of the real spike in crime over the last years, or at least of certain forms of violent crime. I'm thinking through this a lot at the moment. I'm reporting a story in Germany in which a young girl was raped and murdered by a refugee. And I'm interested in the way in which the far-right populists are exploiting that case. And I'm still early in the reporting, but I am also finding that there are some ways in which German institutions really do seem to have failed. This refugee had previously raped an 11-year-old girl. He had spat at and beaten a policewoman. He had performed armed robbery on another person, and there hadn't been any consequences. You know, the police was still investigating some of these things, but he hadn't in any way been punished. He certainly hadn't gone to prison. And at the same time, there are huge failures in other directions. There is a Yazidi woman in Germany who recognized the man who held her as a slave when he was a member of the Islamic State. And she immediately went to authorities and reported this. And they essentially didn't do anything. And she was so scared for her life that she voluntarily returned to Iraq. So when I see those kinds of stories, I'm thinking, you know, that bears no resemblance to what the populists say. But there are real failings here by the authorities to deal with with the influx of refugees and with being able to lay down the grand rules of a multi-ethnic society, which have to include punishing those people on one side or the other, who violate its most basic rules. Yeah. I mean, of course, there are failings of institutions in Sweden. There will always be failings of democratic institutions, not only in Sweden. You will always find that with those examples. And with immigration's new problems have been clear to us, and the authorities have to deal with them. You can acknowledge that, but that doesn't mean that the whole society is collapsing. That doesn't mean that if you look at, for example, at crime in our long-term statistics, in a, is crime going up, is crime going down? If you look at this in, in 20 years perspective, 30 years perspective, things are actually looking better now than they used to. But if you say that in the public discourse in Sweden now, in public discussion in Sweden now, you will be attacked because then you will be accused of ignoring uh, sort of cars being set on fire or rapes happening. But I think you need to have a balanced view of these things and see that, of course, there are real problems, but we shouldn't get into the situation when we think that everything is falling apart because that is actually not the case when you have a long-term view on these things. Fewer people are killed in Sweden now than 25 years ago. So that seems absolutely right to me. I guess one of the questions is, what do you do? How do you make sure that, you know, when I look at this case that I'm reporting out in Germany, my main thought is, 
one of anger at the institutions because they make it easy for the populace to exploit these kinds of stories. But because of the failure of the institutions, what otherwise might seem like an aberrant case, and in many ways is an aberrant case, because of course the number of these cases is relatively small, can be exploited more easily because people can say, well, look, I mean, this guy spattered and beat a policewoman. He robbed somebody. He, he even raped another person. You know, why on earth was he still able to, to walk around? And so I actually am coming out of his reporting and, and, and I'm in the middle of it. So I'm still sort of changing my mind to some extent, thinking we got to be better at playing defense, at covering our bases precisely so that populists can't come in and then exaggerate those. So I guess one question I have is, are there any changes that you think the Swedish state needs to make in order to hold the rise of movements like the Sweden Democrats? And then there's a broader question we'll ask in a moment about what actually is the political takeaway? How should political parties react? But just in terms of sort of the actual functioning of institutions, do you think there's obvious areas for reform there or would that be overreacting? One thing that Swedish society has dealt with more and more and realized that there is a problem is in regards to radicalism. There are areas in Sweden where there is a problem with extremism. We had over the years now people going to Syria, waging a war there, being part of the war and coming back radicalized or probably they were radicalized before they went to Syria and but they came back and they were clearly a threat to security. And maybe there was a naive approach to that for some years. I don't think that's the case anymore, but the public perception might be that the established parties ignore these problems. There has been problems with honorary killings also associated with immigration from some countries in the Middle East especially so what you mean by so-called honor killings, right, just for people who are not so aware of the term is, say, a young girl from an immigrant family who um, starts dating and her family feels disgraced by this and they murder her as a, as a response. And, and there have been instances of that in Sweden. Yeah, and she's killed. But we've lived with those cases now for 20 years, 25 years, maybe at the beginning they were not discussed as much. They were ignored, especially by, I think, the left party. But I don't think that's the situation anymore. What is interesting now is that some, for example, let's say the burning of cars that happened in Gothenburg last week, just a couple of hours after that happened, I received an email from an editor at the Guardian newspaper, and they asked me to write a column about the fires. And that would not have happened five years ago or 10 years ago. They would have been viewed as separate instances. And I think there is something here to the new media ecosystem where separate instances are very rapidly exploited politically, and not only domestically, but they are landing in many different countries. For example, one correspondent that we have, we have two correspondents in the US. It has happened now many times when they go to small US towns and speak to locals there, and they get asked, so where are you from? I'm from Sweden. I'm interested in this. And they say, oh, Sweden. What is going on in Sweden? We read about these rape cases, uh, about Malmo being set on fire. Is it safe to be there? And they ask the people that say this, so where have you get this information? Because it's clearly exaggerated. Uh, well, I read it on the internet. So people that in the past would never have heard about Sweden or anything about things happening here are now suddenly receiving the information. And you ask me about it as well. And I don't know where you get the information from, Yasha, but it's interesting 
interesting to see how these cases are picked up and they become big political issues globally. I, I get all my information from Breitbart and Infowars, Peter. That's everything I read. No, but it's a fascinating transformation that you're describing, yeah. I was shown today a collection of how the right-wing populists are working online on Facebook in Sweden. Hmm. I mean, all the different groups. And what our reporters found is that the reach that these groups have is bigger than the total reach of all the big media companies. Wow. And it's connected with Breitbart, with, I mean, all, I don't know the names of all those sites, but it's an ecosystem, as I mentioned to you, that is not only Swedish, but it's global. Huh. And it's extremely powerful. And I think this is a major reason why politics is disrupting. Because when these stories get out, mm. every day they are pumped out. And a lot of people see them. And maybe they just see 10 seconds of them. But it affects them. And it makes certain issues very important. Issues that didn't used to be so important. And it's pure propaganda. And it's racist, and they are inciting. Yeah, and it's amazing that racist and inciting content ends up having more eyeballs than the whole of a traditional media establishment, essentially. Yeah, because, I mean, when we report things, we try to do it in a balanced way. What they are doing in these groups is shouting. We're not shouting. <laughs> so the ones that are shouting will always win on social media. So will the ones who are shouting always win in politics? Maybe not, but on social media, they will receive a much greater reach hmm. because that's how Facebook is built. So what Mark Zuckerberg has constructed is a machine where the ones who are shouting the most will be heard yeah. the most. Facebook is a global operation. It's the most powerful media entity that we have and probably the most powerful media entity that the world has ever seen. And it doesn't think of itself as media, which doesn't make things easier yeah but it is it's clearly a media entity and i'm 100 confident that donald trump would never have been elected u.s president without facebook i don't think brexit would have happened the way it happened and of course sweden democrats in sweden have profited enormously from social media And at the same time, social media is also a democratic tool that has given voice to many millions of people, or billions of people, actually. It's a fascinating ecosystem. And there are actors here that are working also with clear propaganda motives. And they are using different nations to create a larger picture of Western liberal democracies falling apart and collapsing. And I think Sweden is an interesting case studies in, in this respect. Although we also have real problems, I don't want to ignore that. But many things working in Swedish society and an economy booming, but you don't hear about that. Did you hear about that before talking to me today? I, I did, I did. But it is interesting, and this is something that is true at the domestic level as well, for of course it's easier to exaggerate sort of how horrible things are in a country that people, you know, in the United States don't know that well, thousands of miles away. But in a way, there's something of that to all far-right populists, that they both claim to say, our country is the best in the world, and we have this very special allegiance to our country, and so on. And things in our country are going absolutely horrendously. And it's an odd kind of tension, which you see in the Swedish case, as you point out, in the German case, but you obviously also saw of Donald Trump, who both had the sort of USA, USA, rah, rah, 
nationalism, America first, but also said in its inaugural speech that this country is essentially a wasteland. So it's an odd tension that you see present in a lot of these far-right populist movements. The American carnage ends here, right here. But I think it's a necessary precondition if you want to have support that people feel afraid, that people feel insecure, that people feel that the situation is not stable. The right-wing populist party that wants to thrive in this climate needs that kind of situation where people feel unsafe and afraid. So that is actually how Donald Trump came into power, that a lot of people were afraid. A lot of people felt insecure. And the situation is not much different in the different European countries. And yeah, and in a way, I suppose that's true of a lot of clear political narratives that you both have to say, you know, there's a huge injustice or an imminent threat and there's an easy solution. So you have to exaggerate the extent of the injustice or the extent of a threat. And then you vastly exaggerate the extent to which you're going to be the solution. And that perhaps is at the heart in different ways of different political narratives, but it's taken to an extreme by the populists. So we've talked a little bit about the actual institutional response. I mean, another question, of course, is the political response. So we see the rise of the far-right parties. We see what I tend to call, though I know it's an ugly word, the populistification of formerly center-right parties. As you were saying, some center-right parties in Sweden are continuing to be open to the world and so on, but others are sort of starting to emulate the populists in certain kinds of ways. I've always thought that this is a particularly tough problem for the center-left because the left has traditionally been able to win majorities, certainly in a country like Sweden where they've been so dominant, by holding together very different milieus. They held together sort of the blue-collar working class, and they held together urban people who perhaps were quite educated, who were perhaps more in education and the arts, you know, a school teacher or a university academic, an artist, those kinds of people. And as these two milieus are getting more and more different from each other, it's becoming harder and harder to hold them together. And so it seems to me that social democratic parties in particular have a choice between trying to somehow stay in the middle between these two groups, which might lead to support bleeding away towards the Green Party on the part of the sort of more affluent, more educated people. And I'm thinking of European-style Green Parties, which are quite different from the American one. And then they might bleed to the populists on the right. The alternative is either to embrace being essentially a party of urban elites, but that's going to cost you a lot of votes to the populists, or it is to essentially try and defend the working class votes of everything you've got, for that might then turn a lot of urban elites off. Now, within Scandinavia, you seem to be seeing different strategies at play. It sounds to me, and I'm sure you'll correct all of the ways in which I'm generalizing here, that the Swedish Social Democratic Party is essentially trying to bridge that divide and not giving in too much to the populists. Whereas the Danish Social Democratic Party seems to have started in many ways to emulate or even cooperate with the right-wing populists. So the new head of the Social Democratic Party in Denmark has actually given a joint newspaper interview with the head of the Danish People's Party, the far-right populist party there. I believe she supported in parliament, for she's not part of a government, a bill which essentially stipulated a number of quote-unquote ghettos in Denmark in which criminal punishments were doubled, in which if you are born there, you have to go to early education in a mandatory manner that doesn't apply to the rest of the country. You're designated a ghetto kid, I believe, and all kinds of other things, which really are a striking 
detour from what traditional social democratic policy might have looked like. So how do you see these very different responses by left-wing parties playing out in Scandinavia? And, and how do you assess which of those seem like sensible strategies to you? Yeah, so this is a very interesting and I think crucial question. The populist surge happened earlier in, in Denmark, so I think they are maybe 10 years ahead of us. And the public discourse in Denmark has changed a lot. They've moved to the right. Clearly, when I speak to Danish colleagues and, and interact with Danes, and I can feel that in conversation. They are skeptical of Swedes and Swedes are skeptical of Danes. <laughs> but we have, over the last three years, moved in the Danish direction, but they are still ahead of us. And the Social Democrats is an interesting case because some 15, 20 years ago, the leader of the Social Democratic Party in Denmark said that the Social Democrats would never give any power to the right-wing populists in Denmark. And now, as you point out, there seems to be an opening, a very, I mean, clear opening and a bridge between the two parties. I don't see that happening in Sweden uh, with the Social Democrats here. What is clear to me is that there might be a historical break on the center-right side of, of politics here, where that block that has kept together for a very, very long time might be heading for a split, with one side wanting to get into power with the help of the Sweden Democrats or even with the Sweden Democrats in, in government. And the other side, basically the two liberal parties, very much, very much against it. And interestingly enough now, in this election, it will be actually 100 years since democracy broke out in Sweden. And the two parties that were fighting for democracy in, in Sweden were the Social Democrats and the Liberals. So we are seeing now how actually how Liberals and Social Democrats have found each other. They are not hmm. talking about cooperating in, in politics, but they start to understanding each other in a way that we have not seen for many, many years in Swedish politics. And it might be a sign of the future if this conflict will still be the main conflict in, in politics in five years' time, in 10 years' time, or if we kind of get back to the, to the old right-left-wing conflicts about economics and, and markets. But that's an open question where we are heading. But it's, it's really an interesting time. That's fascinating about this sort of historical resonance of potentially the coalition between social democrats and liberals. You know, looking across skeptically the Eurozone straight towards Denmark from where you are, how do you think about what the social democrats there are doing? Do you think it is they're traitors to the social democratic ideals and they are becoming complicit in deeply illiberal and scary policies? Or do you think that this is a shrewd strategy to ensure that the far-right populists don't take over? I have sort of both instincts warring with each other within my soul. I find a lot of what I've read about the policy that they've endorsed, frankly, unacceptable. And at the same time, I look at the polls and I see the social democrats recovering and the populists losing somewhat in a way that may help to stave off a real attack on liberal democratic institutions. So as the populists are rising, do we dance with the devil or do we stick to our guns? You know, that's but, the debate, but, it seems. But Denmark is the perfect example of the right-wing populists not being part of the government, but actually being the government, almost, because they are the ones that are dictating policy. And it has really changed politics in Denmark in a way that would have surprised people 20 years ago. So during the, the big refugee crisis in 2015, the Danish government even put out ads in newspapers in the Arab world telling people that they should not come to Denmark. Wow. 
that is pretty far, I think. They have announced policies of taking valuables from refugees. I mean, some of the things they are doing are extreme, but it's not receiving much attention these days because politics around Europe and in America, so many strange things are happening that things that would have become major stories 10 years ago are now going just under the radar. They are not even noticed. But Denmark has really changed. And I don't think that Denmark is a successful example if you want to mitigate the effects of right-wing populism. Finland is an interesting example because in Finland, the right-wing populists, the true Finns, they were brought into government. In Finland, there is a different tradition where many different parties are always part of the government and the voters never really knows in advance who will end up in government. (laughs) There is this broad coalition almost every time and the most successful party in the election will lead the government. But the true Finns, the right-wing populists were part of the government, and that actually unleashed a party split and a collapse. So you now have the true Finns and the true true Finns, do you? Yeah, and they are not performing well in the polls. So they have basically collapsed. But if you compare that to the Austrian example, where the right-wing populists were also brought into government, they are now very successful. So I don't think there is a clear formula here that if you bring the right-wing populists into government, they will eventually collapse because they have to take responsibility. That might happen. It has happened in Finland, but it didn't happen in, in Austria. If you keep them outside the government and you try to imitate their policies, that has happened in Denmark, you are changing the entire political landscape. In Sweden, most big parties have adjusted their policies, but not in the way that Denmark has. And they are still trying to hold back. And we'll see where that will end. So I want to cycle back for a moment to economic policy and then ask you a little bit about what we can learn beyond Scandinavia from experience there. But is there actually a continuing consensus around most of the basics of a welfare state? Is it even perhaps the case that 25 years ago, the main debate would have been between the social democrats and the moderates or the liberals about what the welfare state should look like. And now, as everybody's focusing on these cultural issues, they have come to agree with each other more? Or is sort of as the Sweden Democrats are challenging the basic consensus of Swedish society, is the welfare state, you know, more up for grabs and more part of the political debate than it would have been 25 years ago? So 25 years ago, many people actually thought that the welfare state was impossible, that it could not survive the forces of the market, that it would eventually collapse. And and we had, as I mentioned, a big economic crisis in the beginning of the 1990s. But surprisingly, Sweden recovered and the welfare state became even stronger. Of course, there are problems in the welfare state with sick leave, people going on sick leave, too many people going on sick leave. You will find many different things there that you have to deal with. But I would argue that there is now basically a consensus that we need a welfare state. No big party wants to take down that anymore. We don't have that big discussion in Sweden. So the discussion is now more, what about the immigrants and the refugees and the welfare state? So the argument has turned into the welfare state is not sustainable with open borders. 
that is more of the argument, and we will not be able to pay for all the refugees. But I think the jury is still out. And I think in five, ten years' time, we will see uh, how things are going. And, and right now, the economy is, is looking good. A lot of people said in t- back in 2015 that we will see huge problems in 2017, 18. That has not happened. So I think the case for openness is still very strong for Sweden. So you know the United States pretty well. When you're looking at the shape of the American debate about Donald Trump, about populism, about how to resist populism with Scandinavian eyes, what is it that you think we're missing? What is it that befuddles you in the American public debate or where you think actually looking beyond our borders and perhaps looking particularly to Scandinavia, there's a whole bunch of things that we would understand about our own situation that we're missing? Well, I think speaking with people in the States and visiting the States, I'm always struck by the lack of appreciation that many of the things happening in the States are actually happening in many other countries at the same time. So instead of searching for the domestic reasons why someone like Trump has gained to the top, I think we should look all over the Western world and and ask ourselves how did this come about? Because there are so many similarities although the countries are in many respects different. So on the left, people in the U.S. saying that if we only had a welfare state, if only income differences would be not this big, if we only had this Scandinavian system, Trump wouldn't have become president. Might be the case. But look, we have right-wing populists now in Sweden polling at 20%. So I've asked myself, so what are the reasons? Why did we end up in in this situation? And uh, I think... To me, I mean, there are two big megatrends that have affected the entire world. And, and, and the first one is globalization. And the second one is digitalization. And we are seeing a reaction to major changes in our society. So things overall have moved in the right direction. But now there are large portions of society that don't feel comfortable about the changes. And that is not the first time in history. If you look back 100 years before the First World War, we had a period of globalization that in many respects resembles what we've seen now over the last 25 years with openness, with flows of capital, goods all over the world. And that ended up in the First World War. So I think what we can expect now is more of turbulence, hopefully, (laughs) It will end in a more stable situation than now, but I think learning from history, it can end in a very bad situation as well. So that's a really interesting analysis of what the causes of populism are and some of its dangers beyond the United States. If that's what's going on, if it's a mixture of globalization and digitalization, what's the response? I think there has actually been one clear example of how you can successfully offer an alternative. And I think the only politician that has done this over the last year is Emmanuel Macron in in France, because what he showed in, in a very difficult situation in France, that if you provide voters with hope, if you provide them with a clear sense of direction, if you provide them with a sense that you're offering something new, something different, there actually is a large share of the voters that will vote for you, that will support you. But the kind of situation we are in Sweden right now is the feeling is that the traditional parties are, it's very unclear what they want. There is no energy, no hope 
they are not offering hope. They are sort of just drifting. And that is a very dangerous situation in democratic politics, when the established parties are just drifting, when there's not a clear sense of direction. I remember Tony Blair, things can only get better. Things can only get better. You have to provide that kind of feeling to the voters that you will actually improve their lives. You create the right conditions when they can feel that society is moving in the right direction. And that, I think, is key for liberal politicians and democratic politicians all over the Western world. That seems absolutely right to me. And I argue something quite similar in my book. The thing that I'm worried about is that it's hard to do that election after election, right? I mean, Barack Obama did that masterfully in 2008, and it was enough for him to win a big victory and to be reelected. But you can't create this feeling of hope time after time. And since populists, in many countries at least, only have to win once or twice to really rig the system in their favor, that leaves us having to swing for the fences every single time. And sometimes we'll miss. Yeah, but it's not impossible. I think the space is open. And probably maybe there is a case to argue for new parties, especially in the parliamentary systems in, in, in Europe, that you need to change things. If the social democrats are failing, well, start a new party. Show that the established order can be challenged by other actors. There's not only room for new actors coming from the right side, from the right-wing populists. <laughs> the center can start a new party. That is actually what Emmanuel Macron did in France. And it was very successful. And I think it could be replicated in other countries. Well, that's very hands-on practical advice. Uh, Peter, let's hope that when the elections come next week, uh, the Sweden Democrats do a little less well than expected. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Yasha. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you two have been enjoying the podcast, please be like them. Rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends all about it. Share it on Facebook or Twitter. Print out stickers with the Good Fight logo and put them up on every house in your neighborhood. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to thegoodfight at newamerica.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.